We're going to be uh, continuing our systematic study of the Word of God as we go uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, just to uh, try to do our best to declare to you the whole truth, the whole counsel of the Word of God. And so this morning, uh, we're going to pick up where we left off. Uh, Last week concluded Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And today, we will begin a new chapter, chapter 8 of the book of Matthew. I know that since I've been here, we have been looking into the details of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And uh, so before we uh, get into this morning's scripture, I want to just remind you about a few things uh, regarding the book of Matthew and and uh, Matthew's intent in writing uh, this account. Uh, As we continue... Uh, our way through the book of Matthew, we will notice that Matthew often writes thematically, okay? Uh, meaning that oftentimes he will lump similar topics together. And for instance, today's portion of Scripture, uh, Matthew will be doing that very thing. Uh, he'll be looking at and highlighting Jesus' healings. Uh, uh, and then other times, he, he lumps together different miracles. And, and later we're going to see he lumps together a number of all the parables, kind of just lumps them all together. Uh, and we should not get confused as we look at uh, maybe a harmony of the Gospels and you're looking at Luke's account and Matthew's account. You might find that they're in different orders. And Matthew's order is not meant to be written in a chronological order. And so as we cover some of these events, you might say, well, for instance, this morning, some of these events happened before the Sermon on the Mount. And so you might say, well, why, why is that different? Well, Matthew's intent was not to, to put together a chronological order, but one of, of a thematic order. And so we no, recognize those. Please don't allow that to, to confuse you. Um, his ultimate purpose, remember that in writing this account, Matthew's ultimate purpose was to show that Jesus was the king of the Jews, that he was their long-awaited Messiah. And so oftentimes the emphasis upon Matthew's account is to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. What he does often is he uses Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah and quotes those and and shows how Jesus fulfills those prophecies. And so uh, this morning we're going to see he's going to quote from the Old Testament about how the Messiah was going to be one that would come and and bring healings. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. This morning... uh, uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 17 of the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 8. And so I want to encourage you guys to open up there, if you will. Uh, and as we go through this uh, morning's text, I, I'm going to point out just some lessons. Some lessons that we can learn from the healings that Jesus performed. And so, uh, will you stand as we read uh, today's portion of Scripture in honor of God and His Word? We want to just stand as we read it. Matthew chapter 8. And I'm going to read uh, the whole entire portion that we're going to read this morning, or go through this morning, verses 1 through 17. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way. Show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Verse 5. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. 
The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way. And as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Verse 14. Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand and the fever left her and she arose and served them. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled. Here we see he's quoting this Old Testament scripture, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and we pray that you would lead and guide our time of study. Lord, that as we make uh, observations and, and application to our lives, Lord, that we would not uh, just make this a, a head knowledge study, but Lord, that we would take these truths, these applications, and, and we would apply them to our lives. Lord, that we might live for you. Lord, that we might honor you in the things we do and say and, and uh, speak. Father, I just pray that you would be with us, lead and guide our time. I pray that our hearts and minds would be open to receive all that you have for us this morning. We give you thanks. We, we praise you that uh, we know that you are here with us, and we ask that you just continue to lead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't you guys have a seat? These first four verses, we look at uh, a healing of a leper. Jesus has come down from the mountain that he, where he had preached the sermon on the mountain. A multitude of people are still following him. We're told that a, a leper uh, approached Jesus. A leper is, is someone who has leprosy. Okay? A leprosy is an infectious skin disease. Uh, it could be characterized as having scabs or sores, uh, almost like open wounds or flesh. Uh, oftentimes it would be characterized as white shining spots just beneath the skin. And so uh, this man was, uh, uh, had leprosy. And although today uh, there is a medical treatment for uh, the disease, it's uh, Hansen's disease is what they normally call it today, and there's some treatment. In biblical days, the disease was seen as incurable by medical means. And so uh, if you look at all the different accounts regarding uh, leprosy, it's safe to conclude that the only way one could be cured from leprosy was a divine intervention, a miracle in order for someone to be healed from leprosy. And we do have accounts uh, within the scriptures of people that were miraculously healed from leprosy. Uh, There are many regulations set forth within the scriptures that pertain uh, to the leper. If someone was diagnosed as having leprosy, they would be pronounced unclean. 
Uh, and if something was deemed unclean, it meant that it was uh, unworthy of being a part of religious ceremonies of worship. And thus a leper was not allowed to gather together in a corporate uh, setting to worship the Lord. People uh, were not permitted to touch lepers uh, since he was unclean and touching something that was unclean would defile you. Uh, And so people were not allowed to embrace leopards, meaning that even outside of town, a leper would not be even be even able to receive a a salutation or a greeting because in the East, customary greeting would be an embrace, a hug. And so lepers would not be uh, afforded that thing. There would be no embrace, no uh, greetings for lepers. Lepers were uh, required, uh, within the scriptures that tell us that they were required to wear a torn robe. As they would go, they, they had to wear something that was torn. They had to shave their head bare, for some of us, that's not that big of a deal. But for them, that was you know, seen as uh, embarrassing and shameful. Not only did they have to shave their head bare, they had to cover any facial hair. They would have to have uh, use part of their robe to cover their face. And then they'd have to walk around and they'd have to yell out, Unclean! Unclean! For any passers-by that might be unaware. And so they had to clearly identify themselves as a leper. Lepers uh, were not allowed to live within the camp or within the walls of a city, and they were to live alone, away from everyone else. And and so we see the life of a leper was one of great sorrow. They, They were not allowed to gather to worship the Lord. They were prohibited from receiving human touch. They could not hide their infirmities, but they had to openly declare what was wrong with them before everyone and anyone that came close to them. They had to live a life of isolation and loneliness. And thus was the condition of this man that approached Jesus as he came down the mountain. We read that the leper came to Jesus and worshipped him. Remember that lepers were not allowed to gather with others and and worship amongst them because they were unclean. A a, a reading of the parallel accounts in the other Gospels, well, they will tell us that the leper knelt before Jesus and and fell on his face in worship. I I imagine and I I believe that it must have been very freeing for that leper to openly worship amongst a great multitude of people that were following Jesus. He was forbidden from this type of worship and not supposed to mingle amongst people, but he was determined to come before the Lord and worship Him. And, and this is the first lesson that I'd like to point out in regards to things that observations, application as we look at the healing of this leper, uh, is that just like this leper, that we ought to be determined to worship the Lord. We ought to have a determination in our hearts and minds that I'm going to come and worship the Lord. As he worshipped Jesus, he beseeched him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The leper in his declaration rightly addressed Jesus as Lord. He knew to whom he was speaking. He wasn't coming to just anyone that could possibly help him. He was coming to the Lord. He also knew that Jesus was able to heal him. He knew that it really didn't come down to ability. Jesus, he knew he had the ability. It came down to a matter of of willingness. 
The leper knew if Jesus was willing, he could be cured and made clean. The leper, in this account, he took a great risk in coming to Jesus. Socially, we already noted he was forbidden from entering into a crowd like this uh, without properly identifying himself. As you read the other accounts, you don't hear him coming out saying unclean or anything. He just comes boldly to the, to, to the Lord and worships him. And so socially, he took a great risk in doing such a, a thing. I also believe, uh, believing, excuse me, believing that Jesus was Lord would mean that he believed Jesus to be God. And for him to come into the presence of a holy God as an unclean person would be a great risk. It would be against Jewish customs of religious ceremony. Unclean things were forbidden from the worship, the use of worship. And so as an unclean person, it took a risk for him to come before a holy God. He took great risk in whether or not the Lord would be willing. I mean, what if after doing this, the Lord said, you know, turned his head and said, "Mm, I'm not willing. Could you imagine the shame of, of those words, how crushing they would be to a man in his condition? It, I, I don't think I don't see how it would be bearable to be able to you know to, to go out make that risk take that risk and then to ha- hear him say I'm not willing. So he, we see the the leper was willing to step out in faith and see God do the miraculous, and it just made me think, what about us? You know, are, are we willing to step out in faith despite what may be socially uh, acceptable? Despite what may be against certain maybe customs or regulations, are we willing to take a risk for God and to see if He's willing to work something out on our behalf? I think it's a lesson that we can learn here from this, this leper, that he took a risk. He was willing to step out in faith to see God work. And we ought to do the same. I think God would be willing if we would only be willing to give it a try. To step out in faith. Jesus responded to the leper by reaching out his hand and touching him. Can you imagine what that touch must have felt like for that leper? A man that was prohibited from experiencing the touch of an embrace, all of a sudden is embraced and touched by the hand of God. An incredible embrace that must have been. Jesus didn't have to touch the leper, you know that, right? Jesus, he could have simply pronounced him clean and and told him to present himself to the priest without touching him. And it makes me wonder, why would would he do that? There was a purpose in doing such thing. It wasn't necessary, but it was important. I believe Jesus touched him because he knew how much that touch would mean to the leper. Jesus wasn't put off by this man's leprosy. He didn't churn his face in disgust or, or shudder at the sight of this, this leper man. He reached out and he touched him. And it's the, the neat thing about that is that he, he, doesn't, he doesn't do that to us as well. The same thing applies to us. He doesn't look at our life and, and our struggles and, and get churned off by them so much to the matter where he's like, ooh, I can't believe it. You know, Andre, you're, you know, so disgusting. I don't want to even be part of you. You can't get out of my presence. You know, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. I think in in this we see another great example and a lesson that we can learn. That we shouldn't turn away from those that may be seen as the the less desirable in life or the outcast. I think sometimes we can, as Christians, we can kind of have this holy set-apart attitude and and we should 
uh, when we consider just living for the Lord. But at the same time, we, can't, we don't want to ostracize ourselves from those who need to be touched by God. We should be willing to reach out to others and touch their lives as well, just as Jesus did for this leper. Touching something unclean like a leper would make someone ceremonially unclean as well. And so, uh, in reaching out and touching this leper, Jesus takes upon Himself the uncleanness of the leper. And as I thought of that, it just made me uh, think of the portion of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says that, uh, For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. God took upon us, upon Himself, our sins. He reached out and touched this leper and took upon the uncleanness of this leper. And He took this uncleanness, He took our sins, and He bore them on the cross of Calvary and paid the price for them. I was just blessed and reminded of that wonderful truth as I was studying this portion of the Scripture, that as He touched Him, that He took upon that. And just as He's touched our lives and taken our sins from us, a great reminder and blessing there. As Jesus reached out and, and touched the leper, He declared, I am willing. Be cleansed. Oh, how sweet those words must have been to hear for the leper. I am willing. Can you imagine the relief that must have felt at that very moment? He took a great risk. He was bowing before the Lord, face on the ground, worshiping Him and saying, Lord, I know that You're able. If You're willing, I can be cleansed. He senses that touch and He hears those words, I am willing. I imagine it would have been as if the weight of the shoulders, the weight of the world was upon His shoulders had just been lifted up. This freeing sense of just freedom from all that plagued him as a leper. And just an incredible sense as I imagine and picture myself in that scene. The Lord is willing to work on behalf of those who will come to him in faith. Just like he did here with this leopard, he was willing to work. And I believe He's willing to work in our lives as well as we would come to Him in faith and make those risks and take those steps of faith. And so I want to encourage you guys to be willing. Be willing to step out and see God do incredible things. Verse 3 says that immediately His leprosy was cleansed. At the word of Christ, the leprosy left Him and He was cleansed from this crippling disease. Jesus told the leper not to tell anyone but to go his way and show himself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And I find it interesting that Jesus told the leper not to tell anyone. You know, I find it interesting because it, it wasn't something that was done in private, right? There was a, a, a multitude of people that were following him, that were there with him, and so it's not as if it was this, you know, back corner thing that happened. He says, Shh, don't tell anyone. There was a whole bunch of people there that saw it. And, and so it made me wonder, why would the Lord not want him to tell anyone? So I would propose a couple of reasons here for you. Okay? One, I think first and foremost, was to follow God's word. Okay? You see, because there was already a prescribed thing to do. That was explained by Moses in the book of Leviticus in the case of someone being healed from leprosy. God's word had already said what the next thing to do was. And so Jesus was simply saying... Go follow God's word. 
follow God's word. The prescribed thing to do was for him to go to the priest. And so uh, the leper, if a, uh, yeah, excuse me, if a leper's sores were healed, he was to go to the priest, uh, not run around town saying, look, I'm healed. Okay, the, the prescribed thing to do is go to the priest. And the priest would inspect and determine whether or not they had been truly cleansed from this disease. And so I think right off the bat was simply he told them to do it this way because it, he was telling him to follow God's word, the exhortation that was already given by Moses. I think that number two, it tells us within the portion here to provide a testimony for the priest. Jesus said that this miracle would serve as a testimony to the priest. And so we say, okay, maybe that's why too. He wanted it to be a testimony to the priest. A third reason, I think, is that uh, because Jesus was not seeking popularity as a miracle worker. Jesus' focus was not upon drawing a crowd of people that came to him just to see what awesome thing he would do next. That was not his purpose. And so for him to, uh, he said, hey, don't go around telling everybody that happened because we don't need a bunch of people coming and, and it's not, that's not what my ministry is about. Someone have come, have come to create crowds and, and uh, a spectacle. Okay? Interesting enough, if you guys know the other parallel accounts, the leopard doesn't listen, and he goes and tells everybody. And you know what happens is a spe- it becomes a spectacle, so much so that Jesus can't enter into that city anymore, and he has to kind of stay on the outskirts of town because it turns into kind of like this mob type of thing. And so he said, we can kind of realize, oh, that's a good reason for him not to do that. But ultimately, I think, and I believe, that it was simply that Jesus' time had not yet come. It was not time for him to receive praise and the admiration of the people. There would come a time when he would receive the praise and adulation of his people as he entered into Jerusalem on the the back of a colt on that uh, uh, triumphal entry. And they would praise and they would be in the scribes and Pharisees. Hey, you should tell them people to quiet down. And he says, you guys know what he says, right? He says, even if they were quiet, the rocks would cry out. And so he, there was a time when he was going to receive that praise and receive that. Uh, but this was not that time. And so he told him, don't go and tell. Just go to the priest. The ceremony of which Jesus refers to is actually written in the book of Leviticus in chapter 14. And so uh, I'm not going to have you guys go there or read from it because it's kind of long and it gives a very detailed description of, okay, you have to do this and then do this and do this. But if you want to look it up and just read it on your own, Leviticus chapter 14 gives the details that were prescribed for how a leper could be brought back into the community, pronounced clean, and that uh, everything, the stigma and everything that went along with being a leper could be removed. And so if you want to check that out on your own, it's Leviticus chapter 14. We're going to continue on here and look at this next portion of Scripture, uh, verses 5 through 13. It says, Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented, and Jesus said to him, I will come and, see, come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Then Jesus heard it, and he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith not even in Israel. Here, Matthew sees 
uh, excuse me, Matthew says that Jesus has now entered Capernaum. Okay, Capernaum was the most important city in the northwest seashore of the Sea of Galilee, which actually isn't really a sea, it's a lake, uh, but they called it a, a sea. It was a very large body of water. Uh, after Jesus left Nazar- Nazareth, um, Capernaum became his hometown. That's kind of where he set up shop. Jesus did a number of miracles in Capernaum and routinely taught in the synagogue there in Capernaum. As he entered Capernaum, Matthew tells us that a centurion came to him. Some of you guys may not be familiar with what a centurion is. Maybe military people are familiar. A centurion was a a Roman soldier that was in charge of a group of 100 soldiers. Kind of century, 100 years, you know, that kind of... A centurion is a hundred soldiers. Okay? Most centurions were not liked by the Jewish elders in the Jewish community. Okay? A centurion was a Roman uh, soldier. Excuse me. First off, the reasons that they were not liked was because they were Gentiles. Okay? They were not Jews. Uh, and that was uh, something you know, the Jews kind of looked up their, their, uh, looked down upon those that were Gentiles. And so centurions were Romans, and so there would be kind of, that was the knock against them. Uh, Not only that, they were Gentiles, but they were also Roman soldiers. And as such, they would be seen as instruments of Israel's oppression. Remember at this time that the area is under the control of Rome. They've kind of allowed themselves to kind of govern themselves a little bit, but really Rome is in charge. And so a Roman soldier, a centurion, would be seen as someone as uh, somewhat of an instrument of Israel's oppression. And so uh, it was uh, something that was looked down upon these centurions. But the, the interesting thing about the biblical accounts of centurions is that they are all favorable accounts. If you were to go through and read them four different times that we read of examples of centurions in the scripture. Okay, we have this account before us, describes a centurion of great faith. We have, uh, there's a, another account of a centurion who was at the crucifixion. And you may recall that he proclaimed, truly, this man was the Son of God. He declared a, a great faith as he saw the, the the darkness came upon the land and he looked upon the cross and the, everything that was going on and he, he recognized and he knew himself that truly this man was the Son of God. And in Acts chapter 10, we read a, about a centurion by the name of Cornelius. He became the first Gentile to be converted and baptized by the Holy Spirit. And finally, at the end of the book of Acts, we read of another centurion named Julius. And he was assigned to take Paul to Rome, and he treated Paul especially well. And so although in the eyes of the Jewish elders and community, most centurions were looked down upon, the Bible shows us that they weren't all bad, and and gives us some commendable examples of centurions. The centurion here, he comes to the Lord, and he pleads with the Lord regarding a servant of his that was paralyzed and dreadfully tormented. We're not told how this servant became paralyzed. The other gospel account in Luke tells us that he was sick and ready to die. And so some speculate uh, that possibly uh, the servant's sickness could have caused his paralysis, uh, but we can't say for sure. It doesn't tell us. Uh, But it's possible some some form of palsy or some type of bacteria that infected uh, the servant... uh, nervous system, and so uh, we don't know for sure. Maybe they're connected and correlated in some way. We don't know for a positive, though. We do get a glimpse 
into the type of man that this centurion was based upon his care for his servant. Okay? Servants were usually treated as just property. Okay? They weren't considered like human beings, like you would, you know, we would, con- uh, we would interact with people, but they were just seen as property, like something that we have. It's uh, a tool, an instrument uh, that we use. And so servants were usually treated as property. And, and actually under Roman law, a master had the right to kill his slave, and it was expected that he would do so if the slave became ill or injured to the point where he could no longer do the work uh, to which he was assigned to be to do. And so Roman law would allow someone, if they had a slave, to go ahead and kill them. If they weren't able to do because of sickness, uh, they could just... And there would be no repercussions from uh, the law. There would be no punishment because slaves were seen nothing as nothing more than property. And a master could do whatever he wanted with his own property. And so we do see that this centurion, he, he could have just let his servant die. But he cared for him and he wanted to see him healed. What about us? I, I think about us. And do we care about people? And do we desire to see the Lord bring healing to their life? Now this, this centurion, he, he deeply cared for his servant and he was dying and in need of the Lord in his life. And I know that I have people in my life that I hold very dear that are in need of the Lord's healing and the Lord's touch in their life. Do you know people that are in need of the Lord in their life? maybe loved ones, people you hold dearly in your life, shouldn't we be more like this centurion and be willing to step out of our comfort zones and do what we can to bring Jesus to our loved ones? I think we see here a wonderful example, someone who had great compassion and care and wanted to see Jesus in their lives. And I think we can learn a lesson from that, that we would do the same, to desire to see people touched by God. Jesus answered, answered the centurion by telling him that he would come and heal him. Again, we see Jesus willing to work and act upon steps of faith. Jesus was willing to help the leper who took a great risk. And Jesus was willing to help the centurion who sought out the Lord for someone that he deeply cared about. The centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. And we see here, I think, another lesson. Okay, that we can learn from this centurion. It's an attribute, I believe, within the centurion that is admi- admirable, and that is that the centurion was humble. The centurion was, was a man of authority, a Roman commanding officer, one who ruled over others. And as a man of authority, he could have charged in there and tried to make demands and tell Jesus to come and heal his servant, but he didn't. Instead, he took the humble approach. You know, and I think this characteristic, humility, is one that's usually lost as people gain more and more authority and more power in their life. And I think that we should follow the example of this centurion. We need to remain humble, even in the places of authority that the Lord has given us. I think there's a number of you who are in charge of people. You have people below you. And as you uh, get promoted and elevated, maybe there can be a temptation to kind of puff yourself up. But can I encourage you to remain humble? And I believe you'll go much much farther. The Lord will honor that. The Lord will bless that as you remain humble in the places of authority that the Lord has given to you. 
The centurion knew that he was not worthy to be under the same roof as Jesus. And so he told him not to come to his house. It's interesting, if you read the other account in Luke about the healing of the centurion's servant, it says that the centurion never even came to Jesus because he didn't think himself worthy to even be in Jesus' presence. And I, I think it's important to look at, you know, as we go through and we study the gospel accounts, we have other ones that we can glean more information from to get a better and broader picture of what's going on here. And so I think it's important to look at the gospel of Luke's account of this portion of scripture because I want to draw something uh, to your attention. And so if you'd like, you can turn there. It's in Luke chapter 7. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 of Luke chapter 7. It's the same account, uh, a parallel account, as uh, what we read here in Matthew chapter 8. And as we read it, you're going to note some things. Some things will probably stick out to you, and I want to address those this morning. In Luke chapter 7, it says, Now when he concluded all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear to him, was sick and ready to die. And so when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that had followed him, I say to you, I have not seen such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent... Returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. These two accounts don't seem to be saying the same thing. Last, not this last Saturday, but the Saturday before at the Truth Project, we were going across some portions of Scripture, and uh, in the study, they brought up how there seemed to be this discrepancy in the Bible, and 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 what are we going to do with that, and how do we understand, how do we comprehend? Is the Bible wrong? Is it errored? Is it flawed? Uh, how can we know for sure? How do we reconcile these differences? It seems to be two different. Accounts, the same account, but two different stories. And so I wanted to look at that this morning. Okay? They don't seem to match up. Matthew says that the centurion came to Jesus and spoke with him, while Luke says the centurion sent Jewish elders and friends to speak to Jesus. Is this a contradiction? Okay? Is the Bible wrong? Okay? How do we reconcile this? Okay? I think there is a plausible explanation. I'm going to give you three. I think one is true, but I'll give you three. Okay. The first one, okay, it's possibly that this is two different events. Okay, there is some minor differences. Matthew says the servant was paralyzed, tormented. Luke says servant was sick, ready to die. It's possible that there could have been two centurions who had servants that were sick, that lived in Capernaum, that said the same thing. 
but I don't think it's very like li- uh, very likely. It's not uh, possible, but not probable. I believe these accounts are speaking of the same event. Another possibility is one that I found on a trusted website that I like to visit from time to time. It's called CARM, uh, Christian Apologetics Research Ministry. And they have a little tab on there for Bible difficulties, and you can click on it, and it'll try to explain some things uh, that seem to be maybe discrepancies or things that maybe not make sense. And they have a theory in there. I call it the horse theory. Uh, And I'm going to read just how they wrote it out. Uh, You guys can take it and see what you think. But it says... The order of events seemed to be that the centurion first sent the Jewish elders in Luke 7.3. Jesus then agreed to go. Then the centurion came to Jesus in Matthew 8.5 on horseback. Okay, now nowhere in the text does it say that he had a horse, but being a commander of a hundred soldiers, it's very likely that he probably did have a horse. Okay? After speaking to Jesus, the centurion would return on horseback to his dying servant, and then he would send friends to speak to Jesus, say that he's not worthy for Jesus to enter his home. Jesus would continue to come, and then at that time, as he drew near to the house, the centurion would come back out one more time and say, no. Don't come, uh, not worthy, and, and say that whole, I'm a man of authority. I say to one, go, and he goes, comes, and he comes. Okay? So I call that the horse theory. The, the second uh, possibility is more believable, I think, than the first, but I still think that there is a third and better explanation to these seeming discrepancies. The third possibility takes into account the writer's intent. What do we know about the author's and their purpose for writing these accounts. We know that Matthew's main intent was to present Jesus as the King of the Jews, the long-awaited Messiah. Luke's account emphasizes Jesus' humanity and presents Jesus as the Son of Man. Remember that Matthew, he wrote thematically. His account's not written in chronological order. We see that Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he groups topics together like this morning's portion, which deals with different healings that the Lord did. Luke, on the other hand, equally inspired by God's Spirit, desired to write an orderly, chronological account and was very meticulous when it came to the details. Actually, uh, archaeologist Sir William Ramsey wrote this about Luke. He said, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. He should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. Luke was not there on the scene, but when he came on the scene, he set about to create an orderly account. And he went to eyewitnesses and gathered his evidence and did his best to create uh, an accurate timeline of the life of Jesus Christ. And so it would make sense to me that the writer that was very meticulous about the details probably got all the correct details. And so here's what I suggest as the best of the three options. The best of the three is that Luke's account of the centurion sending people to speak to Jesus is a very detailed account. While Matthew's account refers to the centurion because it was his message, even though it was delivered by different people. Okay? It's like when a newscaster reports about something going on in politics. Okay? They may say something like the president gave a message to Congress that they need to you know, approve a bill or approve a budget. Right? 
And the... Uh, this doesn't mean, though, that the president himself actually went to Congress and gave them a message, but that more than likely it means that an official representative delivered the president's message. And although it was delivered by, delivered by a representative, Congress would receive the message as if it were from the very lips of the president. Okay? Or, or maybe, I don't know if this is how it works, but I imagine military, I should have checked and confirmed with you military guys, but it made me think of maybe as a Marine, you, you may say that the general has given us orders to ship out and to go to the Middle East or wherever uh, the general says to go. Did the general really give you those orders? Or did his orders get delivered to you by someone else in the chain of command. Maybe your CEO or your NCO said, hey, we're shipping out. General says we're doing this. But you still, nonetheless, you know that those orders were from the general. The general ordered us to go here and to do this. Well, he really didn't, right? Someone else did. But they came from the general. And so, too, the centurion, a man of authority, could have sent people as representatives and had them speak on his behalf. And so, uh, remember that Matthew's intent was not to share every minute detail. He wrote thematically, and his theme in this portion of Scripture is not the details of who was there and who wasn't there. The details are Jesus had the power to heal. That's his, his emphasis in this portion of Scripture. And so he says it, you know, he accredits it. The centurion is coming, but really it was uh, someone else. But it was his words. It was his message. And so I think that there is a plausible and reasonable explanation for this uh, seeming differences. Okay? Why do I even bring this up? See, so you can say, this is a rabbit trail. Okay? There's a point to it. Okay? What does it have to do with everything that we're talking about? I, I bring this up because I believe one of my responsibilities as a pastor is to rightly divide the Word of God. And it's also to equip you to be able to do the same to rightly divide the Word of God. And I could have just taught you this portion from Matthew's point of view and his perspective, not even brought up Luke's account. It would have been just fine. Okay? But I would have lost out on an opportunity to prepare you to be able to give an answer to those who may doubt, to those who may make the claim that these accounts are a discrepancy in the Bible and that the Bible cannot be trusted. Naysayers like to say that the Bible is filled with discrepancies. And we need to be equipped to be able to give a plausible explanation for seeming discrepancies in the Word of God. And so that's why we did this this morning, okay? to equip you. Okay? It may not tie in with uh, exactly what we're saying, but I do believe it leads us to a point. Okay? And that point is one that we also learn from the account of the centurion, and that is that we can trust the authority of the Word of God. This is the next lesson. We see the centurion said, But only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion understood authority. He too was a man of authority. He oversaw a hundred Roman soldiers. And they did as he demanded The centurion recognized that Jesus too was a man of authority, not over a hundred Roman soldiers, but over illnesses, sicknesses, and disease. And the centurion not only recognizes Jesus' authority, he also trusted in Jesus' word. We should have the same confidence in the authority of God's word. 
The centurion knew. If he says it, it'll happen. There's a confidence and a surety in the authority of God's Word. And we need to have that same confidence and trust the authority of the Word of God. We might look at things and we say, how does that, how does that, it's a discrepancy, oh no. No, dive in a little bit, find a reasonable explanation, be able to give a reason for what we believe and and be able to defend our faith. When Jesus heard, it tells us here, when Jesus heard the words of the centurion, it tells us that he marveled. The word marvel means to be astonished, amazed, or to cause wonder and or awe. I imagine there are few things that can make God marvel. But twice in Scripture we do see Jesus marvel at something. The first time was here with this centurion and his words of faith and belief. The second time, and the only other time that Scripture mentions Jesus marveling at something, was in Mark 6, chapter 6, verse 6, where it tells us that Jesus marveled at the unbelief of the Jews from Nazareth. So we see Jesus marveled at faith. The presence of it in the centurion and the lack thereof in the Jews. Warren Rearsby, a great commentator, Bible teacher, uh, wrote this in his commentary. I wanted to read it from you. It says, If this Roman, with very little spiritual instruction, had that kind of faith in God's Word, how much greater our faith ought to be? We have an entire Bible to read and study, as well as nearly 2,000 years of church history to encourage us, and yet we are guilty of no faith, like Mark 4, verse 40, or little faith, like Matthew 14. Our prayer ought to be, Lord, increase our faith. This is another great lesson that we learn from this healing of the centurion servant, and that is that we ought to be people of great faith. We ought to be people that live by faith. Jesus said that in all Israel he had not found such great faith. And in verses 11, uh, verse 11, Jesus spoke, excuse me, speaks of how many will come from east and west and enter the kingdom of heaven. And he's speaking about the Gentiles who are going to come and be granted access into heaven. In verse 12, Jesus gives a warning to the sons of the kingdom, speaking of the Jewish people and how they will be cast out into outer darkness. Uh, And this is a picture of Jews spending eternity in hell. And not because of anything else, but their faith, their lack of faith. And the Gentiles will receive because of their faith. It's all based upon faith. And we need to be people of great faith. Jesus highlighted the great faith of His Gentile and warned of the lack of faith amongst the Jewish people. And I think for us... You know, we can sometimes be like the Jews and just think, oh, I, I kind of grew up Christian and I, I kind of live off of this tradition when God says, look, it's, you need to have faith your own. It's a personal thing. Uh, I think they just relied upon, well, my father's Abraham and I'm good to go. And you might say, well, my dad's a preacher and I'm good to go. No, that's not how it works. Okay? Individual faith, we need to be people of great faith. Verse 13, Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Verse 14 says, Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. And so he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and served them. 
We're introduced in these verses to Peter's mother-in-law. Okay? This obviously means that Peter was married. Okay? We're not given many details about his marriage or uh, Peter's wife. Uh, some traditions will try and say um, and hold to the notion that Peter was widowed before he became a follower of Christ. But that really doesn't seem likely, seeing how seen as how Peter's mother-in-law is living in his house, uh, it's more likely that both Peter's wife and mother-in-law lived with him in their house in Capernaum, and, and that Peter's wife was alive and as Peter served the Lord. Okay? Also, 1 Corinthians 9.5 is another portion of Scripture you may want to look up later. 1 Corinthians 9.5, it speaks, uh, Paul's talking about how the people that were going out and ministering, they had the right to bring a believing wife, and he references Paul, or excuse me, Peter. He calls him Cephas at that time. And so 1 Corinthians 9.5 indicates, seems to indicate that Peter took with him his wife as he traveled and ministered uh, for, unto the Lord. And I think uh, I see here just an application that I think is an important one. Okay? And that Peter, his wife, and, and here we see his mother-in-law, they served the Lord together. And, and I think one of the most beautiful things to see in ministry is to see families that serve together. There's, there's something special about a, a husband and wife serving in the children's ministry together or, or greeting people together or, or singing unto the Lord and leading us in worship together. I think it's a beautiful thing when families serve together. I, I'm blessed. Uh, you know, we have... I, you may have saw a little Titus coming up here and I thought, oh, that's so funny because one of my points is about serving. I thought, if you would have been part of the worship team practice, I maybe would have let him stay up there. <laughs> it's like, come on down. But... Um, you know, it's a blessing when we have a, a chaplain, Travis, up here and his wife by his side, you know, singing unto the Lord. It's a blessing to see the Martin family uh, and so many of you guys' families, uh, uh, the Garing family, serving the Lord together side by side. It's a blessing. And I want to encourage you guys to, to serve together. It is a beautiful thing. There's a family in Okinawa that I uh, hold, hold very dear in my heart. I was super blessed by them. Uh, the Benyaro family. Uh, <laughs> They, uh, their whole family served together. They had a couple older kids that were in youth group, and they had uh, a little guy who was uh, in the four- and five-year-old class. And mom and dad were the teachers, okay? And the older youth kids were the helpers, and they did that in their son, little son's class. And all five, the whole family went in there together. It was just a beautiful thing to see families serving together. I want to encourage you guys to get plugged in and serve together as a family. There's great blessing in it. Families can and should serve together whenever possible. We're told that Peter's mother-in-law was sick with a fever, and Jesus touched her hand and healed her. After she was healed, she arose and served them. And I find here another lesson to glean from Peter's mother-in-law's healing, and that is her healing enabled her to serve the Lord. Okay? You know, similarly, Jesus' healing in our lives enables us to serve Him. Jesus teaches us that He did not come to be served, but to serve and to lay down His life for us, and He also left for us an example of service. I think a a church that enables people to serve is a healthy one. I think too often in churches there's this uh, 80-20 rule. I don't know if you've ever heard of the 80-20 rule in in ministry. Uh, Usually it's 20% of the people that do 80% of the work in a church, and it really ought not to be that way. Okay? A healthy balance is needed. Okay? 
and as I consider that, I, I think about ourselves. Why has God saved you? Why has God touched your life? Okay? Obviously to wash and cleanse you from your sins so that you might live with Him uh, in heaven for all eternity. Uh, but if you know what? If that was it, if that was the only reason He touched your life, okay, why doesn't He just take you home to be with Him now? Okay? It's obvious to me that if He wanted to, the, the purpose of Him touching your life was simply to wash your sins away, that He could just take you now. He should just call you home now. But he, he hasn't done that. Your presence here this morning is evidence of that. Okay? You see, God still has plans for you and I down here on earth, even after the healing touch in our lives, even after we've had our cl- sins cleansed from us, plans for us to serve Him, plans for us to be used by Him. And we see an example in this, Peter's mother-in-law. She was touched, and she got up and served the Lord. And I want to encourage you guys, as the Lord has touched you, to get up and to serve the Lord. To get plugged in. We've been making announcements several weeks now in a row, asking for people to help out with children's ministry. I want to encourage you guys, not to uh, obligate you or guilt you into it, but to seriously consider what the Lord has for you. Okay? I think sometimes we come and we get fed, we become lethargic and we're just stuffed. you ever been so stuffed, you're just kind of like, ugh. We can do that spiritually, right? We can come to church, we just get fed, and we never do anything. We don't exercise, we don't step out and, and do anything. We just get unhealthy stuff. You know, we need to use uh, and put into practice these things that we're learning. And so get plugged in. Get involved in the ministry of the Lord. Uh, I think it's very important. Wrapping up here, just a, a couple minutes here. Verse sixteen, seventeen. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Our portion concludes with Matthew speaking of a great number of healings that he performed, including uh, those who were demon-possessed. Verse 17 is really the main topic sentence of this morning's portion of Scripture. This is the purpose why he's writing about a healing of a leper, the healing of a centurion servant, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. He is pointing his emphasis. Remember, I'm going to show you that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he says one of the aspects of the Messiah was that he was going to be one that would come and bear our sicknesses and our infirmities. And he would bring healing. And so here we see, this is his point. Okay? His emphasis here. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, you guys, I encourage you. If you have not read Isaiah 53 uh, recently, to do that sometime during this week in your devotion time. Take some time to read Isaiah chapter 53. It gives great, deep description of the work and ministry of the Messiah. Uh, And it's incredible. If you read through it, it's like, how could anyone not recognize this to be speaking of Jesus Christ and His ministry? Uh, So... It's amazing, too, to think that it's written hundreds of years before Jesus came, and yet when you read the details of it, you'll say, this, this like needs to be in the New Testament, you know, this portion of Scripture, because this is what it's talking about. And so we see Matthew's point, his emphasis, showing you that Jesus fulfills these Old Testament prophecies concerning the ministry of the Messiah. You know, and Matthew, as we continue our way through our study in the book of Matthew, hopefully you guys continue to come out and just be blessed in our time. We're going to see that he does this over and over again. He's going to group things together. And his last or his pointed out thing is going to say, so that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. And he's drawing all these connections to Jesus to show that he is the king of the Jews. He is their long-awaited Messiah. As we finish here this morning, I know that we're already running late. 
Okay, just want to encourage you guys to pray over some of these lessons that we pointed out and highlighted from the healings that Jesus did. Okay, perhaps some of these lessons are ones that we need to take to heart our own selves and apply to our own lives. As we look and glean from these things, we looked at the life of the leper and how he takes great risks, uh, stepping out in faith to see God do great things. We saw the centurion as he came and, and he had a desire and a care for people, wanted to see their life, his life touched, that we would have that same heart that we re- learned from Peter, his mother-in-law is being sick, sick and healed, that as a family we can serve together and that God has a plan for us to serve and to plug in. Let's, let's pray.